Um, just a quick update. Uh, a lot of you know we've been aching and longing to be together again. And so we've still got a lot of limits on the state regulations, and we're still waiting to hear an update from the governor tomorrow. But a couple of things we do have planned. A couple of things coming up we have planned. One is next Sunday night. Next Sunday night, that's May 24th, we're going to have an outdoor time of singing and worship together. So it'll be a short service, just like 45 minutes. It'll be next Sunday night at 7.30 p.m. out on the grounds. You'll bring your own blankets, bring your own lawn chairs. We'll practice social distancing and have a short devotional, some time of singing together. So that'll be one way that we can gather here on the grounds and worship together. Uh, Another thing that we're planning for June is making the building available so that small groups can have a social distance gathering in some of the larger rooms here. Um, And so we'll be able to have that ready if you want to contact Jim at bgrace.org, our small groups director, or contact the office, office at bgrace.org. We can reserve the building for small groups, small gatherings to gather with more social distancing. We're also working on more plans as well, and some of that's contingent on what the governor announces tomorrow, seeing how Texas is doing as we push back the virus. So We're excited about that. Go Texas! Thanks, Chris. We're excited about that. Um, Now we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. We spend time every week opening up the Scriptures, studying what the Word says, because we believe that the Bible speaks with the authority and the relevance of Jesus Himself. So we all have a lot of questions about truth and about the world and what we can trust, and we found that this book, this word, tells us who Jesus is and and what he has to say, and so we enjoy cracking it open. We're in, right now, the book of 1 Corinthians, so we've been studying this series called True Unity. In True Unity, we've been focusing on the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians, and over the next year or so, we're going to study the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but this first four-chapter section that we're in right now focuses on the problem of division, how human beings have this natural habit of dividing and saying, I'm a part of this group and I'm a part of that group, and finding our identity in leaders instead of in Christ himself. And Paul is challenging them, saying, we have to have true unity in Christ, true unity in the cross of Christ. So this week, as we move on to chapter 3, in chapter 3, we're calling the sermon this week, Maturity Produces Leadership. I just remembered I didn't pull out my timer. I'm going to pull that out, turn on my clock. That helps me to make sure I don't preach for an entire hour, which I know a lot of you would enjoy, but not everybody does. So, Um, Maturity Produces Leadership. Last week, if you remember, as we were looking at the end of chapter 2, we were talking about growth by the Spirit, how real spiritual growth is learning to depend on the Holy Spirit and trust in the cross of Christ, trust in who Jesus is. This week, Paul's going to be opening up saying, "But, but you guys are struggling. You guys are like infants. You're like infants that still need milk and you're not really ready for solid food. Um, When I was an infant, when I was born, you may not believe this by looking at me, but I was actually a 10-pound newborn. Can you believe that? 10 pounds. You should feel very sad for my mother, who is a tiny person. Yes. Um, So I was a 10-pound baby, and the doctor joked with my mom and dad as soon as I was born and said, I think we're ready to put him on a hamburger diet immediately, right? But it was a joke, because even a big infant, even a big baby still needs milk, right? I'll tell you another story. Uh, When my folks split up, my dad would take us out to eat at the steakhouse. It was called Western Sizzlin'. Anybody remember Western Sizzlin'? Right? It was kind of like the Texas Roadhouse of the 70s, I guess. Um, 
Western Sicilian was known as a steakhouse, and I was about six years old, and I remember this tension I felt because my parents would try to tell me that steak was great and wonderful, but as a six-year-old with tiny little teeth, probably some missing teeth, I couldn't, I couldn't eat steak, right? Like I was not ready for it. I was not mature enough for steak. And so I can remember that tension of feeling like I'm supposed to like this, but I can't even chew it, you know? Um, but now, hopefully I'm a little bit more mature, but now I love steak, right? Not only do I love to eat steak, I love to actually make steak for other people. Um, so anyway, I use that illustration because Paul uses the illustration of babies are not ready for certain things yet. And Paul's going to say that's a similar problem with the people in Corinth, that they're spiritually immature, that they're still on spiritual milk. They're not ready to move on to maturity. So let's read the text. We're going to be in chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 23. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, literally babies in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So he's coming back to this problem that we already saw in chapter 1 and 2. Verse 5 says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we're God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace God has given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God, for it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas of the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Let me pray for us and then we'll look at this in more detail. God, thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We thank you that you have not left us without words, without guidance, without instruction. Help us to hear you. We pray your spirit would open our minds and hearts that we would be those who are spiritual and not those who are 
fleshly, not those who are babies, but that we would grow up into maturity, that we would lead those you've put in our care, that we would glory in in you, that we would boast in what you have done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at this concept, maturity produces leadership, what I want you to understand here is that Paul is addressing their problem of division, and the problem of division was related to leadership, right? Because division was resulting because some people were taking leadership and saying, you should follow me as I follow this group, and I'm better than your group because my group is the smarter group or the slicker group or the more interesting group. And so people were creating division and trying to get people to follow them. Paul's saying that's, that is not in keeping with the cross of Christ. People are making an identity for themselves and who's following them and who they're following. And he says, that's really not what leadership is about at all. So he starts off again with the problem of babies. He's saying, you people who think you're so wise, who think you're so powerful, you're actually like infants. And we're having to go back all over again to the basics, the foundation of the cross, the foundation of Jesus Christ. And so that's what Paul's taking them back to. And then he's going to help them to see that if you actually mature And if you actually learn the humility of the cross, that there's nothing you did that makes yourself more valuable, but it's what God did through the cross, then as you rely on that more and more, you're actually going to end up leading others. And so all of us are called to lead. Some of us see ourselves as leaders because we might have a title, we might have an office of leadership, but every human being in the kingdom of God is to lead others, is to point others to Jesus, is to serve others. And so as we unpack this text, we're going to ask and answer three questions. The first question is, what is a leader? We have to define that. What is a leader? Secondly, why should we lead? And then thirdly, how do leaders go wrong? So what is a leader? Why should we lead? And then how do leaders go wrong? So we established the problem in the first few verses. They're being babies because they're continuing with their jealousy, their strife, their division, their factions. They're trying to say that their um, identity is based on who they belong to or who they follow. Paul says, no, that's immature. And he says, part of your immaturity is based on your misunderstanding of what a leader actually is, right? Because he's saying, if you're placing your identity in which leader you follow, you're misunderstanding what the leader is doing. So the first question is, then what is a leader? And Paul's going to answer this in verses 5 through 9. So verses 1 through 4, he lays out the problem. And then now I'm going to start in verse 5, 5 through 9, with what is a leader? Verse 5, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. Servants through whom you believed. So he's saying, we're not gods. We're not idols that can give you an identity. Christ is the one that gives you the identity. The, the leaders of the church, Paul, Apollo, Cephas, these different leaders, factions, tribes are dividing in. He's like, we're just servants. You're overestimating what leadership actually is. You're misunderstanding it. So what, what are we? What's Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. God is in charge. Verse six, he says, I planted Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Do you see that? My wife read the Bible story earlier from Matthew 13, the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower, sometimes it's called. The idea is that as we share the word of Christ, it's like throwing seeds into the ground. Sometimes the seeds take root and grow, sometimes they don't. It's clear in the scriptures through all the different parables that talk about this, that God is the one that gives spiritual growth. 
God is the one who changes lives by the power of the cross, by the message of a God who took on flesh, who lived the perfect life we should lead, who died a sacrificial death for us and did not stay dead, but rose from the dead through resurrection, proving that he conquered sin and death for all of us. So if you trust in that reality, God sees you as forgiven. God sees you as righteous. God loves, delights, and likes you. And so this transformation of believing the cross gives us a new identity. And it doesn't matter who told you that message, whether it was me or whether it was your neighbor or whether it was a Sunday school teacher 20 years ago. Who told you the message doesn't matter. It's God that gives you new life through this message of the cross. And so that message of the cross is the seed that's planted in your heart. And as you believe, that's God giving growth to you. So Paul's clarifying this. You're you're misunderstanding what leadership is if you're placing your identity in your leader. If you think being connected to a certain author or leader or tribe or pastor makes you something special, Paul's like, you don't even know what a leader is. So what is a leader? Well, the first thing he says is a servant. What's Apollos? What's Paul? Verse 5, servants, servants. N.T. Wright says it this way. We're like waiters waiting on tables, right? We're the ones bringing you the food. We're not making the food. And so we have to understand what leadership is. He goes on in verse 7 and says, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. What is he saying? He's using hyperbole, right? Like Apollos and Paul exist, so he doesn't mean not anything and like they don't exist. He's just saying, compared to God, we're nothing. We're servants. We're farmers. I'm just working on the farm, but it's God's farm, right? God's the one in charge, and he's the one that gives us our identity. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one. He's coming back to this unity idea. So don't try to separate, and one's more important. Oh, the watering guy is more important than the, the guy that plants the seeds. No, he's saying we're all one. It's God's work. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So the people of God are this farm that God is working on. Um, One of the great things about the quarantine is that we've had a lot of time to do more gardening. It's springtime. It's fun to see things grow. Maybe some of you are growing things at home. I grabbed a picture uh, online of a family gardening together, hopefully Um, It hasn't been just all utter chaos with everybody stuck at home, but maybe you've enjoyed some beautiful spring days, some walks outside. Maybe you've enjoyed seeing new leaves and new flowers and new fruits and vegetables sprouting and growing in this world. Well, the way God has made the world, he's made it so that we can plant seeds, we can water things, we can weed, we have plenty of work to do. It's not like we don't do anything, but God is the one that makes things grow. And that's what Paul wants us to understand here. So if you want to lead, if you want to have real maturity bearing fruit in your life, then you're going to lead those around you by pointing people to God, by giving glory to him. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of boasting. There's a kind of terrible, prideful boasting in ourselves and who we are and what we've accomplished. And then there's a gospel-centered boasting in the cross. God's work is what we boast in, not our own work. So how do we apply this? How do we live as servants, not idols? How do we live as farmers working the field, knowing that God is the one that owns the field? How do we do this? Well, I think it's helpful to think about it in two ways, because Paul talks about leadership and followers in the church, right? Paul's saying, 
you know, me and Paul and Apollos, we're leaders, but as leaders, we're really servants. That's what leadership really is. And this should remind us of what Jesus taught us about leadership in John chapter 13. Jesus demonstrated leadership. Jesus demonstrated what it looked like and said, you should follow my model. He washed his disciples' feet. He acted as a servant or a slave. He humbled himself and served others in the most, the most humble way. So if you want to be a leader, point people to Jesus. If you want to be a leader, then serve. One of the farming analogies that's been helpful for me to think about the part that we play in sharing the message of the cross and who Jesus is, is the initial CPR. We use CPR to talk about resuscitating someone when they're dead. Spiritually, they're a spiritual CPR as well. And it follows the gardening analogies, the seed sowing and watering analogies, right? And you could say CPR is cultivate, plant, and reap. Cultivate, plant, and reap. What's our part? We, we pray for God to give the growth, but we can cultivate relationships with people. We can love people. Are you loving people? Are you serving people? And then we can plant seeds of truth. As we have opportunities, we can give a reason for the hope that we have within us, just like it talks about in 1 Peter 3.15. So we can plant seeds of truth, talk about who Jesus is and what he's done for us. And then finally, we can reap new faith in people's lives. We can help them come to trust in Jesus. But those are three different steps, and God is the one that ultimately oversees the process. So what are the next steps you can take with people around you? Do you need to cultivate new relationships? Do you need to, maybe it's time to plant seeds of truth in their life through conversation? Or maybe it's time for you to uh, reap new faith. Maybe you've got friends that are ready to trust in Christ. We do these parts as servants, as farmers, but God gives the growth. Now that's what it looks like to lead, to, to begin to be mature as Paul describes his own servant leadership. What does it mean to be a follower? He says, we're God's field, right? We're God's building. Well, it's to recognize our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. And so the question for us, by way of application, is what makes you who you are? When you think about who you are, is it based on what you do for a living? Is it based on who loves you? Is it based on how much pleasure you're enjoying today or this weekend? Or is it based on what Christ has done for you? So here he's saying, we want to base our identity in what Christ has done for us, not the leader we're following, or the tribe we belong to, or this group, or this set of relationships, or this guild of of vocation. I belong to this group that does this kind of work, so that makes me special. He's like, no, don't, don't factionalize, don't divide, be unified in that we all have one unified identity as God's children, God's field, God's building. So what is a leader? A leader is merely a servant. Followers are those who receive the word from these servants. All right, so the next point that we're going to see, we're going to answer the question, why should we lead? Why should we lead? And we're going to see the answer to this in verses 10 through 15. So why should anyone lead anyone else? Starting in verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. So why did Paul lead? Why did Paul start serving as a servant leader? Why did Paul start building as a servant builder in God's household? Because of the grace God had given him. And that should be the same reason in our life, right? We love because he first loved us. We forgive because God in Christ forgave us. We serve others because Jesus served us. That's where leadership comes from, God's 
grace. So Paul says, like a skilled builder, I laid a foundation. Someone else now is building on it, right? Apollos is there working or other leaders are there working in the church. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So again, he's bringing us back to the foundation, the cross of Christ. Don't get sidetracked on who the best leader is or who the best looking leader is or what the best speaking style is. He says, focus on the foundation. Verse 12. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and he's going to contrast this with other materials, wood, hay, straw, verse 13, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So Paul's not trying to go too far down the rabbit hole in describing building here. He's generally contrasting things that last and that can endure fire and flame and things that don't last that burn up in the fire, right? And so he's saying there are two ways of building in this world. And those two ways of building are are based on the motivation we have. Are you building for you, for self, or are you building because of God's grace to you? So again, the, the question we're asking is, why should we lead? Why should we serve? Why should we build? Why should we take part in what God is doing? Why? God's grace. It's God's grace at work in our hearts. That's what motivates us. And that's what changes what we're working with, right? So to think of it this way, if you're building a ministry based on your skills and talents, if you're serving people to get them to follow you instead of to follow Jesus, you're building a house made of straw. That's what Paul is saying. Paul's saying it's possible to have ministries here. And just to clarify, he's talking about spiritual leadership here specifically. I think this has application to the rest of of our, our lives planting gardens and uh, building houses and all that in in the rest of our lives, but he's primarily talking about the work of the church here. And he's talking about the ministry work of the church, the building up of the church. And if the church is built up on people's egos, on people's identity, on their leadership style and skills, he's saying that's like wood and straw. It's going to burn up. It's not going to last. It's not genuine spiritual transformation, right? It's kind of like faking the farming. It's like saying, I'm going to I'm going to force the plant to grow, right? I'm going to plant plastic trees in my field and say, look at what I did. And Paul's like, that's that's not a real tree, right? That's not real spiritual transformation. He talks about this in, in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, that real spiritual transformation produces love and joy and peace. The song that Chris and Karis sang for us earlier, these are the real miraculous spiritual transformations in our life. But we're always going to be tempted as leaders, as workers, to build it on our own strength and on our own flesh. So he says, these things can be burned up. Go back to verse 13 again. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And so here he's saying that there is a day and when we see the day in scripture, it's talking about the day of judgment, the day of of reckoning. And we have other cross-references that talk about this idea of the ultimate day of judgment being a, a day of fire. We also see in the Old Testament that God is revealed as a consuming fire, and Hebrews echoes this as well. So there's some sense in which we cannot stand before God because he is an all-consuming fire 
without the transforming work of Jesus Christ, that, that we will not endure. And he's saying a similar thing about our work. There's a work that we do that's wasted time that just burns up because it was all about us. And then there's a kind of work that we can do that's based on the cross. It's based on loving others. Remember where 1 Corinthians is going. 1 Corinthians 13, he says that love is the ultimate motivation. So is the work that you do, is the ministry that you do about you impressing God or impressing other people? Or is the ministry and service that you do about bringing Jesus to more people and helping them glory in him? Helping them see the the beauty of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished for them. And so we talk about this sometimes as gospel-centered ministry. Have you ever heard about this? Um, In this section, we might say cross-centered ministry. Is our ministry, is our service, is the stuff that we do as a church gathered together based on our desperate need for an identity and a tribe to belong to, or is it based on God has already given me everything in Christ? I'm full, and I want to share that with other people. I grabbed a picture of a house fire. Uh, I don't know if any of you have had a house fire. Uh, it's, a, it's a very scary thing. We've gone through that. Our house didn't burn all the way down, but we stood there and watched while smoke was coming out of the top of our house and the firemen rushed in and were able to put the fire out. But it's, it's a terrifying feeling, right? Because you know that in a matter of minutes, everything can burn up. Paul's saying the only thing that lasts is what we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ. If we start building it on us, on who we are and what we've done, it's all going to go away. He goes on and uses even scarier language here. Verse 15 Uh, Actually, back up to verse 14 again. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. We'll be rewarded for what we do. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, I just want to admit that, that this is a mystery. We're not really sure how this all works. There's a sense in which uh, we understand from the New Testament in this passage and other passages as well that Jesus talks about rewards. There's some sense that we're going to be commended and rewarded for the ministry and what we spent for Jesus. And I don't understand how that works because right in, in this life, when our friends are rewarded more than us, we're jealous, right? So the only thing I can understand is somehow heaven's going to be so awesome, being with Jesus is going to be so awesome that I'm going to be glad that you're rewarded more than me. That's, that's the only way I can make sense of it. Um, and there are not a lot of passages that talk about this. So I think we don't want to spend too much time running off on a tangent that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of explanation for. Paul's just merely saying, hey, God's going to bless you. God's going to reward you if you invest in ministry that's not built on your own ego but it's built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And he says, it is possible to be saved, to belong to Jesus, but to be saved like you just were snatched out of a fire and everything you built and invested in was kind of a waste. So Paul's calling us to invest in what will last, to invest in something that's permanent. D.A. Carson has an interesting quote about this in his book, The Cross and Christian Ministry. D.A. Carson says this, if the church is being built with large portions of charm, personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of Jesus Christ and him crucified, we may be winning more adherents than converts. 
He's saying you can win followers, adherents, but not actually convert people to Jesus. The church's job is to convert people to Jesus. D.A. Carson goes on and he says, not for a moment am I suggesting that, say, managerial skills are unnecessary or basic people skills are merely optional, but the fundamental, non-negotiable, that without which the church is no longer the church, is the gospel. God's folly, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So Paul's going to unfold this more in the book of 1 Corinthians. Encourage you, I encourage you to read the whole book, right? 1 Corinthians 12, he says, we've all got different gifts, but we use them to lift up Jesus. So whatever your different skills are, whether it's managerial skills or speaking skills or whatever, it's all to point to Jesus, not to point to your own skills. And then in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, it's, it's love. That's the motive. That's the drive. We're using whatever gifts we have. We're using whatever means we have to love people and serve them and point them to Christ. So that's what Paul is talking about here because they're doing the opposite, right? Their factionalism, their division, their strife, their jealousy is a immature, babyish reliance on an identity in tribe, an identity in following a certain brand or a certain preference instead of their identity resting in Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Now, uh, what does this look like in our life? How do we actually apply this, right? How do we apply this? I I think I want to be clear because this verse can confuse us. It can make it sound like all we should do is tell people about Jesus and we should stop gardening and we should stop going to work and we should stop uh, cooking meals and changing diapers, right? We should give all that up to just do spiritual things, right? And talk about Jesus. I want to be clear. We're under commands to live normal earthly lives and tell people about Jesus, right? Sometimes we talk about this as the uh, cultural commission, Genesis 1, go and glorify God and do normal human life, build cities, have families, get jobs, plant trees. We are to do those things. God has commanded us to do that. But we are also to fulfill the Great Commission. So again, just to clarify, sometimes we can go off in one extreme or the other. I think liberal Christians tend to say, all of life is under God's care, and so we just forget the gospel and we just live life, right? We care for the poor, we help people, we do nice things, we build cities, we do education, but we never really tell people about Jesus. The other extreme, maybe fundamentalist or conservative Christianity can say, we just tell people about Jesus and we don't care about the rest of life. To be clear, the Bible says both. We have to do both, right? We have to cook meals. We have to build houses. We have to live a normal life. And we have to tell people about Jesus Christ. What Paul is talking about here is the identity of the church. God's people are the people whose new identity rests in what Jesus has done for them through the cross. 1 Corinthians 2.2, it's the message of the cross of Christ. That is what is central to what the church is. And so the church takes this new relationship with Jesus and lives our normal life serving and loving others instead of living our normal life to build our own ego and identity. So so both groups of people, people in the church that belong to Jesus and people that don't belong to Jesus, are to live normal lives and glorify God by building schools and, and houses and taking care of children and planting trees, all the normal things of life, working our regular jobs. We're both called to do that. But Christians are the ones that understand it's for God's glory and that Jesus has saved us and he's redeemed us and we belong to him. And so our identity is now in him rather than in the group or the tribe or the affiliation that we connect with.
And so again, this cross-centered, grace-focused leadership takes the New Testament commands to heart that say, we love because he first loved us. We forgive because he first forgave us. We serve because Christ served us. We give because Christ gave to us. So grace transforms everything. Paul says, it's according to this grace that I lay this foundation. All right, the last section we're going to look at is how do leaders go wrong? I'm going to rush this last point a little bit. How do leaders go wrong? Look at verses 16 through 23. And I'll go ahead and give away the answer. It's pride. That's how leaders go wrong. Verses 16 through 23. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now, just to clarify, this is plural. So if this was a Texan translation, it would say, do y'all not know that y'all are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in y'all? All (laughs) y'all. Thank you, whoever said that. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Y'all are that temple. So he's talking about the group together. We are God's temple. God's people together are God's temple. What is God's temple? Well, a temple tells the world. It's where God uh, comes down to earth, right, and reveals himself. Think of the Old Testament temple. It's this place where who he is is proclaimed. His presence is manifest. We're told that God is holy. We're reminded that people are sinners. And we see that sacrifices can be made to graciously bring us into God's family so that forgiveness can be granted. That's what the Old Testament temple pointed to. And that's what the New Testament temple should point to. We as God's people should proclaim this message. God is holy. We are not, but he's also gracious. And so by the sacrifice of Jesus, he brings us in to his presence and into his family. So he says, those who try to destroy that reality, that identity as God's manifest presence, as God's temple, that's what the church is to be. He says, if you're trying to tear the church apart, God will destroy you. Scary warning. Verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. You have to give up the wisdom of this world and begin glorying in the cross of Christ. Verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God. It's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they're futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. This is again is echoing the kind of language that Paul communicated in the very opening of this letter where he said, you have been blessed in every way. You've been enriched in every way in Christ. You have everything. Why would you look elsewhere? Why would you say Jesus Christ is not enough? Now I need a better retirement package. Or Jesus Christ is not enough. Now I need to be a part of the right tribe or group or affiliation to make myself feel better about who I am. Paul's saying you have everything in Christ. Why would you run to something else? So again, he's saying we're the temple. If we understand who we are and what our existence is about, That's going to combat pride cropping up in our heart. That's going to combat our desire to lure people to follow us or for us to follow some special leader. It's going to help us remember that we're about together in a unified way 
through diversity and unity, different people belonging to the same Jesus, we're going to display who God is. I grabbed a picture of the ancient temple. This is like a, a replica of the second temple, the, the temple that they would have been referencing during the first century. And that temple was a giant, gorgeous building built according to God's standards to communicate the holiness of God and the sacrifices that he would make to bring us into his presence. How could sinners be forgiven and adopted into God's family? The temple was telling that story constantly, and Jesus and his cross summarizes that story. God is holy and we are not. We do not measure up for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death. The falling short of the glory of God results in death. Us not living up to the holiness of God results in death and being cast out and following the right tribe, following the right team, being a part of the right clique is not going to make our sin go away. Only the cross of Christ can do that. And so we are now the temple of God that displays this story. We're the ones that preach this message. And Paul's saying, be very careful that you do not destroy the temple or God will destroy you. So just to make it real simple, if the church ever belongs or ever becomes a place that's more about affiliations of tribes and less about the cross of Christ, it's no longer the church. You've destroyed its function as the temple. And so our job together, and not just the job of the leaders, this is our job together as God's people is to make sure we're always about the cross of Christ. We're always pointing to Jesus. Again, we're waiters, we're servants, taking people to the real food, which is Jesus himself, not to us. We don't say, look at me, I've got it figured out. We say, Jesus is your only hope. And that's where we as a group should be pointing people. And so diversity comes together in the church where we say we're all one because of Christ. Our diversity doesn't make us more important than the other people. Tall people are not important than short people, or short people are not more important than tall people, or black, brown, tan. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how much money you make. It doesn't matter where you grew up. As much as we love to joke about Texas being awesome, it doesn't even matter what state you were born in, okay? I can't believe I said that out loud. It's, do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in what he's done for you? That's what makes us a part of the family of God. And then, again, as Paul explains in the rest of this letter, 1 Corinthians 12, we all have different gifts and different perspectives, and those are unified to lift up Jesus for the purpose of chapter 13, love. That's the most excellent way, loving others, serving others. By way of application, I think we need to come to a place where we admit where we've placed our identity and our loyalty in either where we grew up, the group we belong to, our favorite leader, our favorite teacher, our favorite ministry method. We need to take a long, hard look at ourselves and say, are there places where I'm, where I'm putting my identity in that? How smart I am? How much I've got, got figured out? And we need to repent. Say, Jesus, I no longer trust in my affiliation. I trust in you. You alone are my only hope. So to wrap up, I want to come back to the the concept that, that Paul uses about milk and meat. Here's the thing that's really crazy about that. Over the years that I've been in ministry, uh, people like to talk about the difference between spiritual milk and spiritual meat being like the difference between the basic gospel cross of Christ and then more complex, hard to understand theology that we're not really sure about. I don't think that's it. I think here Paul is saying, actually, the real meat is the meat of humility. 
the real solid food of Christianity is servant leadership, right? Because think about this in your own life, right? Like I talked about how, you know, when I was little, I couldn't eat steak. Now I love to eat steak. You know what I really love to do? I love to cook steak for my family. I love to make meals for others. Or if, if you're a vegan, some of our vegan friends, right? Like loving to eat it is one thing, but then wanting to make it and serve people is another thing. And this is the beautiful image that Christ gave us. It's one of the central images. It's one of the things we miss the most about gathering online right now is not having communion together because communion is this symbolic meal where Christians come together and say, Jesus is my food and Jesus is my drink. And Jesus invites all of us to share that food and drink, him, his death, his resurrection with the world. He is our only hope. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you call us to yourself and help us to grow up in you. Help us uh, to lead those you've placed around us, not to ourselves, but to lead to you. Help us to be waiters that serve the food of Jesus. Help us to build on the foundation of Christ crucified, risen from the dead. We thank you that you love us. Thank you that you made us your own. Help us to be a diverse church. We come from different backgrounds. We come from different places. We love different things, Lord, but you are the one that makes us unified. We're unified because of what you've done for us in Christ. We thank you for that, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.